Okay, we're going to give uh, one more, uh, two more minutes uh, before I get started. Okay, I'm get, I'm going to get uh, started. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, today is uh, June the twelfth, and year twenty twenty two. This is Peter Mark. Uh, today's topic is uh, called uh, jurisprudential incoherence: the characteristics of judicial white privilege. Uh, Today's topic uh, can be very long, but I might uh, cut it short uh, because uh, I'm going to go over the uh, actual constitutional statuses of different racial minority groups. And uh, there's uh, quite a number of racial minority groups in America, so it's probably not uh, appropriate to rush through all of them today. And uh, because of that, I might just go over uh, one uh, racial minority group today and do it uh, more uh, in another day. So I'm gonna start with a introduction and uh, and then it will be followed by I believe a sixth segment. Uh, each segment literally represents uh, each uh, racial minority group. And then I'm going to conclude. Uh, it, it's all about uh, this called incoherence in the judicial decisions in the past in regard to the constitutional rights and the privileges of racial minority groups. Uh, I'm gonna start with the introduction. The introduction is about uh, this uh, jurisprudential incoherence right now at the US Supreme Court. As, we, uh, if, as you may or may not know, one of the ultimate duty of the Supreme Court of the United States is to upkeep a coherence 
in the, all the judicial decisions that are handed out in the lower courts. So basically, the courts in California uh, can make a decision, but it's inconsistent with a court's decision that are made in Pennsylvania or vice versa. So the U.S. Supreme Court has this duty to make sure the decisions made down below among the state courts and the federal courts, they are consistent. They have a uh, consistent and coherent compliance with the Constitution of the United States. However, as we you may know, recently the Supreme Court has become, I would say, a joke all by itself. Uh, I would actually rather call it, so the Supreme Court has become a gift that keeps on giving. Uh, to the opposite of uh, upkeeping jurisprudential coherence, uh, the Supreme Court itself is, uh, has become very incoherent in its own decision and the current decision. So, of course, I'm talking about this uh, uh, leaker's investigation of this drafted opinion by Justice Samuel Alito and the four other justices in regard to the abortion rights in this case called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. And uh, recently, the PBS, the Public Broadcasting uh, uh, Corporation, uh, had a, a segment where Nina Totenberg, uh, this uh, uh, PBS uh, Supreme Court correspondent, reported about the current uh, status of the uh, leakers investigation. Uh, first of all, uh, I think I have said in my past episode, I am in full support of this uh, Supreme Court leaker. I treat this leaker uh, very much like the NSA leaker, Edward Snowden. These leakers uh, usually uh, have observed something horrifying uh, as far as uh, uh, the government agency is concerned. In, the, in Snowden's case, basically, he strongly believed the U.S. government, specifically the NSA, uh, I think NSA's uh, National Security Agency, uh, is committing a crime by uh, doing uh, surveillance of American citizens without a warrant. Right. So uh, in the Supreme Court leaker situation, basically, this leaker believed the reversal of uh, Roe v. Wade is a horrifying decision, which is going to have a very bad impact to the society as a whole, as a whole. So therefore, he or she, you know, decided to take this action. So according to Nina Totenberg, again, this is a PBS Supreme Court correspondence. Currently, uh, the investigators is facing serious dilemma. Number one is there are just too many suspects. Uh, initially, the investigator thought only a handful of uh, Supreme Court justice clerks will have access to this uh, legal draft. But currently, it seems to them that there are too many individuals who have access, who had access to this uh, legal draft. The second problem with this investigation is this. There's a still not a specific crime. And uh, there's no, not a specific federal statute 
saying uh, leaking uh, court document, especially this court document is not specifically said it has must be under seal. There's no criminal statute in the federal judiciary, in the federal law, that says this leaking of a, a drafted opinion is a crime. So the investigation itself is being conducted under a cloud of uh, non-compliance with the law. And uh, in the uh, more ironically, what uh, Nina Totenberg uh, brought up is this. The U.S. Supreme Court six years ago has made a unanimous decision that uh, searching the cell phones of a suspect require a search warrant. The name of that case is called the Riley versus California. Riley, R-I-L-E-Y versus California. In that case, the Supreme Court held in a unanimous decision by the Chief Justice Roberts that the police generally require a search warrant in order to search a cell phone or cell phones, even when it occurs during an otherwise lawful arrest. In other words, even when you arrest someone, that someone's cell phone cannot be searched unless the police obtain a search warrant. Remember, the Chief Justice Roberts is the same Chief Justice in Riley versus California, and it's the same person who is uh, conducting the investigation of this leaker. In Riley versus uh, California, the Chief Justice explained that analogizing a search of a data on a cell phone to a search of a physical items is akin to, quote, saying a ride on horseback is materially indistinguishable from a flight to the moon. Both are ways of getting from point A to point B, but little else justify lumping them together, unquote. In that case, the Supreme Court also emphasized that the fact that, quote, the fact that technology now allows an individual to carry such information in his or her handheld uh, does not make the information any less worthy of the protection for which the founders fought. Our answer to the question of what police must do before searching a cell phone ceased incident to an arrest is accordingly simple, dash get a warrant, unquote. So the problem at hand in this Supreme Court leakers investigation is the same. To get a search warrant, you require, you have a specification of a actual crime that has been committed. Remember, majority of this uh, Supreme Court leaker investigation is surrounded about individuals' cell phone. So almost all the clubs suspected of uh, leaking the drafted opinion will have to submit their cell phones for inspection, right? And, uh, well, not a lot of people is going to volunteer their cell phone to be inspected by the police, including the justice. 
And uh, by the way, like I said earlier, the uh, the investigator has found out there's more than the Supreme Court Justice clerks that can be considered a suspect of this uh, leaking investigation because many people have had access to this uh, draft. So again, right now, as the law is written by the Congress or in Washington, D.C., leaking a draft opinion of a court document is not necessarily a crime. And uh, you can just uh, uh, Google those uh, many, many commentators about this uh, case that uh, there's just no statute saying this is a crime. So that brings into a question. So a lot of people know this term called stop and risk. Stop and risk means that the police is uh, is legally authorized and the stop and the search uh, anyone on the street of New York uh, to uh, and uh, this uh, stop and frisk generally do not need a search warrant and uh, and they are mostly applied to uh, 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 black pedestrians in New York or Hispanic pedestrians in New York and uh, and uh, now and you do not need a search warrant specifying what crime uh, this. Uh, the uh, search subject has committed. So here, this, this is a, another jurisprudential incoherence by no other than the Supreme Court of the United States. Basically, the Supreme Court now, currently, is a stop and frisk its own law clerks. As a matter of fact, a number of law clerks have to call uh, very famous law firms to lawyer up, to protect themselves. And all the clerks and the many other suspects may not have a committed a, a actual crime, but they are subject to interrogations under oath. They are required to submit affidavits. They probably will be required to testify uh, before the investigator, etc., etc. Et all this is done without the requirement of the government to allege a specific crime and apply for a search warrant. So that is the ultimate supreme irony, meaning the Supreme Court is a stop and frisking its own employees. So that is the introduction for today, meaning that the jurisprudential incoherence, it's 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 occurring even today at the highest court. So now I'm going to go to the segment one. The title of the segment one is the rights of a man. Rights of a man is a is a, a, a publication by this uh, famous founding father Thomas Paine. The Fourth Amendment rights uh, uh, guarantee. Uh, the individual's rights from and the privilege from unreasonable search by the government. These Fourth Amendment rights are among the rights of man, as the founding fathers intended. Among those founding fathers, Thomas Paine is a really a badass revolutionist, even by today's standard. 
uh, he and uh, John Quincy Adam, the other founding fathers, are the two members in those days among founding fathers who never owned a slave. Thomas Paine is one of the greatest critical theorists. Unlike the scholars of the, those days, like John Locke and many other literary scholars, established scholars, Thomas Paine is a common man who popularized the concept of human rights and the American independence. Paine's publications were so provocative then that he has to use a pseudonym for his series uh, called Common Sense. Also, uh, also it's called uh, The American Crisis. That pamphlet is uh, by Thomas Paine is uh, an easy to read pamphlet of essays that educate ordinary people why a break away from the British monarchy is of natural rights and the natural consequences. Okay, so similar to this guy, uh, Thomas Paine, I'm also using a pseudonym these days because of the topics I'm, uh, I'm talking about, judicial white privilege, is a very controversial topic. And uh, Thomas Paine back then asked a very simple question in a common man's term, in an average person's term. For example, he will ask why a small island nation called England have the power to rule such a big country, big continent called America? This is a very simple question. Ask, you know, the, the, a common average person, why in America we should be ruled by England? It's a small island of the continent of Europe. Here uh, today, I'm asking the general public, how come a small number of the elites, that is judges, could generate so much racial injustice towards so many, uh, for so long, that have impacted so many racial minority people, all in the name of administration of equal justice? Right. So I'm asking a very similar and provocative question. The Right of Man is one of Thomas Paine's uh, publication in which he's, he, uh, he's, uh, he, he, he said the following, and I'm going to quote. It is a perversion of terms to say that a chatter gives rights. It operates by a country effect that of taking rights away. Rights are inherently in all the inhabitants, but charters, by annulling those rights in the majority, leave the right by exclusion in the hands of a few. They consequently are instruments of injustice. The fact, therefore, must be that the individuals themselves, each in his own personal and sovereign right, entered into a contract with each other to produce a government. And this is the only mode in which governments have a right to arise. 
and the only principle on which they have a right to exist. Unquote. This is a profound statement. Back then, and even today, I'm going to paraphrase what he just said. What Thomas Paine is saying then is this. By the way, his uh, ex, uh, per, per, uh, representation of this uh, principle, founding principle of America, is the same with those more scholarly commentators back then, like uh, John Locke and others. In plain language today, what Thomas Paine is saying, laws do not give rights to people. To the contrary, laws take rights away from people. That's the first point he's making. Second point he's making is this. Laws leave the right in the hands of a few. Basically, if you make a law, the, the law is going to take the right in the hands of a few. Therefore, those few people consequently become instruments of injustice. So that's kind of similar to what I'm saying here. It's basically the courts. In the name of uh, administration of laws has become instruments of injustice. Okay, so so furthermore, I'm going to say is that what he means is that the, the, the rights are presumed without loss. So I'm going to call him back. He's basically saying the uh, 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 the rights are inherently in the people, people alone. Okay, it's for each individual. It's for each individual, like you and me in our own personal and sovereign rights to enter into a contract to, with each other to produce a government. Government has no rights to exist until we, the people, consent to a contract to each other. Okay, so rights are presumed without any laws. When laws were made, rights were taken away. This is specific, especially true to the racial minorities. Okay, when you know laws generally are made to take the rights away. So when that happened, and when the courts uphold these laws, then the judges became instruments of injustice. What Thomas uh, uh, Paine advocate then is this: number one, rights are inherently in all the inhabitants. So I'm quoting him here. I quote him saying, one, rights are inherently in all the inhabitants, end quote. Number two, laws, quote, leave the right in the hands of a few. They, consequential, they consequently are instruments of injustice, end quote. These are not my words. These are Thomas Paine's words. So keep these two questions in mind as we move forward. The first question is this. Did the President Abraham Lincoln give freedom to the slaves? Or are the slaves inherently free men? Now, it's basically following what Thomas Paine is advocating. 
rights are inherently in all the inhabitants. So slaves are inhabitants of America. Are their rights inherent? Inherent, or do they need Abraham Lincoln, President Abraham Lincoln, to give slaves the rights? The second question I want to keep in mind, which we are not going to address today, is that if there are rights of a man, as Thomas Paine advocated, is there rights of a woman? So I want you to talk, uh, you know, think about the, this uh, Dobbs versus Jackson, basically the reversal of uh, Roe v. Wade. Bit, again, back to that leakers investigation. So keep this in mind. If there is a thing called rights of a man, is there also a thing called rights of women? So before I end this uh, Thomas Paine's teaching, uh, I want uh, you to think about this uh, uh, historic event. This is, uh, happened in Memphis, Tennessee, city of Memphis, Tennessee, in 1968. You can Google this. It's called the Memphis City Sanitary Workers Strike. Uh, I will repeat that. Memphis City Sanitation Workers Strike. You can Google that, and you can look at some images and the video clips of that sanitary worker strike. I was back then. I was fascinated by a big sign that those uh, uh, striking sanitary workers uh, is wearing in front of them. The sign has a very simple sentence: "I am a man." That's all it says. "I am a man." Back then, I actually do not understand why such a strike demanding equal treatment by the city of Memphis for those who work on, in, you know, collecting trashes and the dump the, uh, the sewage materials. Why all the demand is, I am a man. I found that to be profound because uh, that actually can trace back to Thomas Paine's rights of man, meaning that these uh, sanitary workers mostly Blacks, they want to be treated as a man who have rights of man, and uh, so 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 that so so that uh, the rights of a of man is a very profound uh, concept and the principle that are re uh, really still reign true today. So this is the first. Uh, segment I want to talk about called the rights of man according to Thomas Paine. The uh, so I'm going to quickly go over because I think I've, it's already thirty minutes in the uh, in the uh, in this uh, 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 little uh, episode. I have a five segment specifically talking about. The uh, each racial minority group and what's their rights of men as far as the courts are concerned, right? So, so uh, for for that purposes, uh, I'm going to go as far as I can, but I, I do want to limit this episode to be one hour. So and uh, and uh, 
so that you know because I don't want to go uh, too quickly with this, and I will end with the conclusion if I don't have enough time. So the segment two is about the jurisprudential incoherence on rights of the Native Americans. This is about the you know American Indians. The time frame of this jurisprudential incoherence is uh, from the time the first Europeans landed in America to present time. Uh, a little bit uh, background uh, is this. For this project, I have researched uh, many court cases in regarding to the black people, the Hispanic people, the Japanese Americans, the Chinese Americans, the Hispanic Americans. Okay, and uh, of course, uh, needless to say, I actually did dig into the cases involving American Indians, the Native Americans. And uh, I got a hold of this book. Uh, I don't recall the exact title of this book. Uh, the title of it basically means that all the cases in front of the court involving Native Americans. I was very disappointed uh, after quickly going through that book, is that the author pretty much conclude that the book of uh, the author of that book conclude that there's no particular guiding principle or coherent uh, train of thought by the courts when it comes to Native Americans, and uh, because. Uh, to the black people, I can understand there is a train of thought by the courts. First of all, the courts do not consider black people as a human being, as a full American citizen. That's why they are slaves. There's a slave clause in the Constitution. And then later on, the courts also said uh, when the Civil War is over, the court says, well, the blacks can be a citizen, but we're not going to treat them equally. We're going to treat them separately. It's called a separate but equal principle. Right? So... So you can see a, a, a consistent discrimination by the courts against the blacks. But the, for the Native Americans, we don't know what happened. So basically that makes me to conclude that maybe the uh, tribal nations, even today, really should be treated as a foreign nation, meaning they are probably just a separate country out of those tribal nations, even today. Because the net, the courts never give us a clear and consistent idea. Who are these people? Who are these places called the reservations? Are reservations the territories of the United States? Are they a sovereign state of the United States? They're not because uh, not each Indian reservation can send two senators and the congressman to the to, uh, to the Washington, D.C., right? But at the same time, are they foreign nations? If they are foreign nations, can they apply for a member in the United Nations? Because I know for a fact that uh, even today, between Canada and the United States, near the Buffalo area, uh, I believe that if you belong to the, one of those native tribes, in that uh, that uh, overlaps between Canada and the United States, you do not need a visa to enter each country. You just need to hold the membership of that tribe. You can enter Canada freely and enter United States freely. So 
So the first, this segment I'm going to talk about the Native Americans, basically, I cannot figure out exactly what's the constitutional status of these tribal nations currently in America. And I have some good evidence to support that going way back. First of all, as I mentioned, this book by you know, a legal scholar who went over, who went through all the Native American cases in, uh, in front of the different state courts and the federal courts up to now, he cannot conclude any coherent thinking of what the court's thinking about the constitutional rights and the status of these uh, Native Americans and tribes. Secondly, there is a ruling a long time ago. Uh, it's called the Ex Parte Crow Dog. Ex Parte, E X P A R T E, Crow Dog, C R O W D O G. Uh, Chief Justice Matthews made a statement which is very relevant even today. Okay. And uh, in that particular case, basically, this uh, Indian chief uh, killed another Indian chief on the Indian reservation. So the federal government, the federal prosecutors, prosecuted this, uh, def- uh, this, uh, this person. I think it's a Crow Dog. His name, Indian name is Crow Dog. And they convicted him. So this uh, guy, Crow Dog, appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, basically saying the federal government, the federal prosecutors, has no jurisdiction for crimes committed on the Indian reservation. Remember, even today, if a murder happened in Canada, the U.S. government has no jurisdiction because Canada is a separate country. So back then, a murder has happened on the Indian reservation, and the U.S. government entered, arrested this person, prosecuted the person, and convicted him. So this person is unhappy. He appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court saying, this is an Indian reservation. The U.S. government has no rights over us. So here is the, uh, here is the actual writing of Justice Matthews back then, Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Quote, he tries them not by their peers, nor by the customs of their people, nor the law of their land, but by superiors of a different race. According to the law of a social state of which they have an imperfect conception and which is opposed to the traditions of their history, to the habits of their lives, to the strongest prejudices of their savage nature, one which measures the red man's revenge by the maxims of the white man's morality. End quote. So basically what the Chief Justice Matthew is saying is this. This Native American, a murder suspect, was tried not by his own people, his own Native Americans, or by the custom of the, his own tribes, or the law of his own ancestral land, but by white people, 
a different race, according to the law of a white people, which is opposed to the tradition of the Native Americans' history and opposed to the habits of Native Americans. And under the you know, strongest prejudice that these Native Americans are savages. And, uh, and, and the white people are measuring uh, a Native Americans' revengeful killing by the principle of a white man's own morality. So the consequence of that decision, basically this uh, Native American murder suspect convicted was eventually freed by the U.S. Supreme Court saying the United States have no jurisdiction over crimes committed on the reservation. So I, as I have always said, reservation is a specific, it's an American landmark, meaning that non-white people can be restricted in certain area called the reservation, right? So this uh, jurisprudential incoherence is that have the court ever decided whether the tribal nations today, are they a separate nation eligible for recognition by the United Nations? Or are they one of the sovereign state, just like 50 other states in the United States? As we all know in the history, the U.S. government signed about over 400 treaties with the Native Americans. And I believe uh, the scholar has said none of those treaties were fulfilled. All of them were broken. The violation of treaties with the Native Americans, are these a, a, a violation of international law or is it a violation of the Constitution of the United States? That I do not know. And that's why I have uh, invited you know, any Native Americans to Give me an education. Give me a schooling about exactly what happened in this regard. So, by the way, I have seen more uh, another listeners. So, I'm going to try to make her uh, uh, or him a speaker if he so choose to. So that is the uh, the, the the second segment. Uh, actually, the first segment about the first racial minority group, that is Native Americans. Now I'm going to go, oh, by the way, I'll see this July person, listeners on, so I'm going to just invite everyone. Uh, feel free to join or not to join, okay? The choice is yours. The next one I want to talk about is the jurisprudential incoherence on the rights of the black people. Again, the court is just totally incoherent when it comes to rights of the black people. I'm going to cover the period of 1619 uh, when the first group of Africans were landed in of uh, the shore of Virginia through the pre-Civil War time and then post-Civil War, the Jim Crow period, the Nader period, all the way to 1968. First, I'm going to talk about the pre-Civil War. What is the constitutional status of black people? As we know, 
under the Constitution, there's a slave clause. Blacks are seriously considered, in all seriousness, a property, not a human being, right? And I think in the prior episode, I have said, it was the court, not the lawmakers, in around the 1670 by a Virginia general court that sentenced a black indentured servant by the name of a John Punch to be a lifetime slave. To be a lifetime slave. It's a court who decided the black should be slaves. So again, in this segment, we're talking about plantations. Plantations is another American landmark. I call it American landmark of white privilege, meaning plantations set specific physical boundaries for the black people. And the court approved these boundaries. So the pre-Civil War, blacks' constitutional status is a property. And as we know, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the slave clause, and then we have, uh, we have the Dred Scott case. It's a U.S. Supreme Court landmark case. In the Dred Scott case, the Supreme Court decided a seven to two against the Scott uh, African, finding that neither he nor any other person of African ancestry could claim citizenship in the United States. Therefore, Dred Scott cannot bring a suit in the federal court because you are not a citizen. You're out of here. Okay, that's the original, very first slave status, property status of blacks. What's getting interesting talking about incoherence? Of course, you know, the incoherence in Dred Scott is already obvious when you go back to rights of a man by Thomas Paine. Right? Thomas Paine said any inhabitants of America are inherently free and have all the rights of man. The second tier of this uh, jurisprudential incoherence comes in the the second huge event of pre-Civil War. It's called the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Now, I want to remind the listeners there's a various version of a Fugitive Slave Act. The 1850 version is the nail on the coffin of the Union. It's my opinion, according to my research, is that this law, the 1850 version, is the trigger of the Civil War. In this Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, it's getting more bizarre. As we know, at this time, slaves are properties of slave owners. So imagine slaves, they are just like cows and horses, right? You keep them on the reservation, uh, on the plantation. It's like you, you keep your horses, uh, you know, in the, in a fenced area. But sometimes the horses will run away. Cows may run away. They're properties, but they do run away. And slaves run away. Two, their properties. You know, let's accept slaves are animals. Okay? The Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 is saying this. If a slave escaped to the northern state of free states, it must be the northern free people, black and white, 
who have helped these animals escape their owners. Therefore, this version of the law is saying the southerner, the slave owners, have the rights to arrest any person in the northern state, white, black, or anyone, for the property loss of the slave owners. Remember, slaves are property. They are like cows. They are like dogs. They are like horses. They escaped. The big jump, the leap of faith here is this. Now the white people in the northern state have become responsible criminally, civilly, financially, if they ever help or support fugitive slaves. So imagine if you have a cat and this cat for some reason run away to your neighbor's house. Do you pull a gun to your neighbor's house saying, you stole my cat, you have helped my cat escape? Maybe the cat escaped on his or her own determination. Right? Slaves decide to be fugitive on their own determination. You don't need any white person or black person in the northern state to encourage them. However, the 1850s Fugitive Slave Act will allow northern, uh, uh, southern slave owners to go after free people in the northern state, criminally and civilly and financially for the so-called lost property. So that's a gigantic leap of faith. Of course, that is absolutely in violation of the state rights of the northern state and the individual rights and privilege of the northern free people. Again, how can you blame the loss of property? Again, this loss of property is, these properties run away on their own legs, right? How can you blame your neighbors? when your cat run away or your horses run away. Now, this is under the assumption, which is a wrong assumption, that slaves are properties. They are like cows, horses, pigs, and all that. It just doesn't make sense, right? But you would think, well, the court probably never pay attention to, to this, but it did. The, this uh, Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was challenged in the U.S. Supreme Court. And you can guess it. The same people who decided on the dress Scott also upheld the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, and therefore, we have a civil war. Six, 600,000 people died of the civil war. So, so this is not, uh, this interpretation is not a stretch of my own imagination. Uh, the, the Emancipation Proclamation, very famously signed by Abraham Lincoln, a lot of people say, oh, the uh, President Lincoln gave freedom to the slaves. No, that actually, legally speaking, remember, Lincoln is a lawyer himself. He actually, the, he did this uh, order of a, uh, em, the emancipation of uh, proclamation legally because uh, slaves, remember, are properties during the Civil War. As a commander-in-chief in a military action, when the commanders seize the properties of your enemies, the military commander have all the rights to do whatever he sees fit to those properties. If he sees a part of gold from the enemies, he can give those gold to his soldiers. He can pretty much do whatever he wants. 
So emancipation proclamation is a release of properties captured from the enemies. Remember that. Even during the civil wars, blacks are still considered properties. Okay, so so that's that. And so uh, these days you have uh, uh, two uh, emancipation memorials, one in Washington, D.C., uh, one in Boston, depicting a freed slave kneeling at Abraham Lincoln's feet. You can Google that picture. It's called the Emancipation Memorials. That that statue, uh, that memorial actually sent a horrible message, meaning the blacks do not have the rights of a man. Blacks are not born free. Blacks are, does not have inherently rights wherever they inhabit. It's the president, Abraham Lincoln, who gave rights to these black men, which is totally against the founding principle of this country. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the opposite of what Thomas Paine is saying. Rights are inherent among the inhabitants, all inhabitants. So now I'm going to talk about post-Civil War. I think I'm already close to one hour. I want to keep it short. Within one hour. So uh, let's talk about post-Civil War. What's the constitutional status? of the blacks people. The course, once again, is doing its magic. First of all, let's talk about the 13th Amendment and the 14th Amendment. They are sometimes called war amendments. War, W-A-R. War amendments means that you have federal soldiers stationed in the South until the South agree to certain terms and conditions as the final resolution of the Civil War. War amendments, meaning that these are the amendments that you gain after 600,000 people die. Right? So, sure enough, in Plassey versus Ferguson, the court now facing a reality that the blacks are freed, they should be considered a citizen of the United States. That's their new constitutional status, right? The courts have a different idea now. At least the, the white majority in the South has a different idea about the free blacks. It's called, they need to be treated separately. So Plassey versus Ferguson came up to the court. This is where the court now decide blacks can be citizens, but he can be a separate kind of citizens, right? Remember, Plassey versus Ferguson, this guy, Homer Plassey, he is a man of a mixed race who was called a, an octorum, a person of a seven-eighth white and one-eighth black ancestry. So this uh, Homer Plassey is as white as you can be. He's a seven-eighth white. Even under these circumstances, the courts will say, uh-uh, 
Blacks are free, but they are kind of a separate class of a citizen by themselves. So that's where the courts lay out the foundation of a new constitutional status for the blacks, right? That give the rights, the white, the white majority, the, 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 the white majorities, the right to drive away racial minorities. You know, we know the term called the sundown towns, also known as the sunset towns, gray towns. These are all white municipalities or neighborhoods in the United States that practice a form of racial segregation by excluding non-whites, where some combination of a discriminatory local laws, intimidations, or violence. Right? We, we, uh, and it, this, like I mentioned, this is just after the Civil War. And uh, because, you know, in my next segment, uh, segment I'm going to talk about the, 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 the jurisprudential incoherence on rights of the Chinese. Uh, because the Chinese Exclusion Act also happened around the same time when the Jing Kong law became legalized by the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay, so basically what I'm trying to say here, the jurisprudential incoherence is fully demonstrated in the treatment of blacks by no other than the uh, and the courts. The courts actually is the initiator of racial oppression, not anyone else. So now I can see I am uh, already in an hour, close to an hour. So let me see whether I should go over to the next segment, which is the jurisprudential incoherence on the rights of Chinese. I will do the Chinese, and I'm going to save the uh, Japanese Americans, Puerto Ricans, in a, in another time. In regard to the Chinese Americans, there's also a tremendous amount of a jurisprudential incoherence. You just don't know what the hell the court is doing. Again, the Chinese Exclusion Act is pretty much on the same line, timeline-wise, time with the Jinko Law against the blacks. You know, I can summarize this. The court, the Supreme Court has said, the Chinese inhabitants of America, you may keep your laundromat business, but at the same time, you have to get out of the United States of America. So let me repeat. The U.S. Supreme Court literally said, the Chinese residents in San Francisco, you can keep running your laundromat business, washing clothes. But overall, the Chinese Exclusion Act is illegal, and we don't want the Chinese in this country. These two cases cannot be, cannot stay true at the same time, but they do. So the laundromat case is called the Yikwo versus Hopkins. Basically, the San Francisco City Council passed a law saying all these laundromats must have a fire safety license. Okay, so among, I think there's a, just a 
predominant uh, amount of uh, number of Chinese laundromat when they file for permission for this file safety thing, they got rejected. Most of the white-owned laundromats, when they apply for this, they got accepted. So therefore, it comes up. There's two cases out of the same same reason, and they all go up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court did, in fact, cite it with the Chinese laundromat owners, saying you the San Francisco city cannot just pass a seemingly racially neutral law, but it was enforced discriminatory against Chinese. But the problem is this, at the same time, the Chinese Exclusion Act was made by the Congress. There were 10,000 cases filed by the Chinese then with the federal court in order to protect their rights and privilege to stay in this country. I do not know the outcome of it, but some of those cases did end up in the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court sided with the Chinese Exclusion Act. Okay, so here comes the jurisprudential incoherence in their own words, in these justices' own words. First of all, let's go back to Plassey versus Ferguson. There is a justice who dissented on Plassey versus Ferguson. His name is John Marshall Harlan. And I'm going to read his own words in the in this Plassey case, the African-American case, and then his words in this Chinese case. And you will see this astounding jurisprudential incoherence. You'll be surprised how come these words are coming from the same mouth. In Plassey versus Ferguson, Justice Holland dissented. He said, quote, everyone knows that the statute in question had its origin in the purpose, not so much to exclude white people from railroad cars occupied by blacks as to exclude colored people from coaches occupied by or assigned to white persons. The thing to accomplish was, under the guise of giving equal accommodation for whites and blacks, to compel the latter to keep to themselves while traveling in railroad passenger coaches. No one would be so wanting in candor as to assert the contrary. The white race deems itself to be the dominant race in this country. And so it is the, it is in prestige, in achievements, in education, in wealth, and in power. But in view of the constitution, in the eye of law, there is in this country no superior dominant ruling class of citizens. There is no caste here. Our constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. In respect of civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful. The law regards man as man 
and it takes no account of his surroundings or of his color when his civil rights, as guaranteed by the supreme law of the land, are involved. End quote. These are profoundly just and the wise word by this Justice Harlan. Okay, he's sometimes called greatest dissenter, which I strongly disagree. Now let's hear the same justice, his words in the Chinese case, which is not far apart time-wise from the Plassey versus Ferguson. In this case called the Wong King Ark, W-O-N-G, K-I-M-A-R-K. The Supreme Court is considering the citizenship clause of the 14th Amendment. Remember, Plassey is overturned the 14th Amendment, the War Amendment. In this case, it's also a 14th Amendment case, but it's about the citizenship clause of that amendment. It's involving a, a natural-born Chinese person in America whether this person should be treated as a U.S. citizen. In this case, Justice Harlan dissented again. He is saying this Chinese person born in America should not be considered a U.S. citizen. Here is the word by Justice Harlan concurring with the Chief Justice. I forgot his name. I quote, Generally speaking, I understand the subjects of the Emperor of China, that ancient empire, with its history of thousands of years and its unbroken continuity in belief, traditions, and the government, in spite of revolutions and, cha and changes of dynasty, to be bound to him be every conception of a duty and by every principle of their religion, of which filial pity is the first and the greatest commandment. The formerly, perhaps still, their penal laws denounced the severest penalties on those who renounced their country and allegiance and their abettors, and in effect, held the relatives at home of the Chinese in foreign lands as hostage for their loyalty. And whatever concession may have been made by treaty in the direction of admitting the right of expatriation in some sense, they seem in the United States to have remained pilgrims and sojourners as all their fathers were. At all events, they have never been allowed by our laws to acquire our nationality, and except in sporadic instances, do not appear ever to have a desire to do so, end quote. So what Justice Holland here is saying, the Chinese should never be allowed to be considered citizens of the United States. Again, this is under the same 14th Amendment. Um, he further says this, in this again, this is a written judicial record. The 14th Amendment was not designed to accord citizenship 
two persons so situated and so cut off the legislative power from dealing with the subject. What he unquote. What he's saying here is this: the Chinese Exclusion Act made by the Congress is completely okay under the Fourteenth Amendment under the Constitution of the United States. Of course, fortunately, he is in majority here because the citizenship clause of the Fourteenth of Amendment is upheld in this landmark case. It's applied even today for the uh, all immigrants from. From any parts of the world. Now I'm going to quote. I'm going to make a lens a, a a speaker also. So I'm going to quote Justice Harlan again. He is, in my opinion, by fake news, mainstream media considered great dissenter, which I disagree. He is a plain racist of in his own rights. Justice Harlan also has made extra judicial comments about the Chinese. I'm going to quote. Uh, I'm going to quote this on Wikipedia page. Okay, in a lecture to a group of law students shortly before the decision in this Chinese case, Justice Harlan commented that the Chinese had long been excluded from American society, quote, upon the idea that this is a race utterly foreign to us and never will assimilate. With us, end quote. Without the exclusion legislation, that is the Chinese Exclusion Act, Justice Harlan stated that his opinion that the vast numbers of Chinese, quote, would have rooted out the American population, end quote, in the Western United States. I'm going to add my comment. Justice Harlan is one of the original great. Replacement theorist. Justice Harlan is afraid the Chinese is going to occupy most of the western part of the United States. Well, the fact is that that's still not true. The western part of the United States are made of mostly European people, people with European ancestry, not Chinese ancestry, not even Japanese ancestry. So that is the view. Of Chinese by the Supreme Court Justice Harlan. So I end this segment on the legal status of the Chinese, as considered by the courts. Okay. So、uh, now I'm already, I think, ten minutes over what I wanted to do. So I have a more in the、uh, about the constitutional status of the.、Uh, In, uh, of people living in the U.S. territories overseas, and also the wartime residents in the United States, basically the Japanese Americans during the Second World War. But I think I should conclude for today. So this is a rhetorical question: Why,、uh, you know, why politicians lie all the time? The answer will be because they are politicians. Then the question will be why the courts have so ma- so many jurisprudential incoherence. Why are their decisions so self-conflicting? The answer is because the judges are politicians in robes. The judges 
in theory, should follow the law. But in reality, to follow the politics. The politics is it's called, I call it the white majoritarian government. The cases of these jurisprudential incoherence that I have cited today, regardless of whoever individual justice, regardless whether they concurred or dissented, they have a very coherent goal. Basically, a group of very few white Anglo-Saxon men acting as an instrument of injustice, as Thomas Paine predicted, deprives constitutional rights and privileges of other men. Not white men, but other men. If the U.S. courts continue to treat, uh, actually mistreat, tribal nations of Native Americans, U.S. territory, uh, U.S. territories such as Puerto Rico, Guam. If they continue to mistreat the, you know, the inhabitants of the sovereign states who have ancestral ties other than from to 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 you uh, to to other places, you know, basically non-Western, non-Anglo-Saxon, non-white people. Then these mistreated inhabitants probably should consider seeking the protection under the article of human rights under the United Nations. Right? Think about think about the uh, the constitutional status of all these uh, I call the colonial lands in the history of the United States which I actually want to, wanted to talk about, which I did not, which I'm going to quickly go over now. It's always, it started with the native land of whoever, and then it becomes territory, right? Territories. And then it becomes colonies. And all the colonies united and break away from the British and they become sovereign state. The term sovereign state meaning each individual in those states, a sovereign person by him or herself, they form a government. They consent to be governed by a government that their rights, rights of men will not, will never ever be violated. Right? So, 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 and then when you become a sovereign state, all the inhabitants will become an equal full citizen in front of the court, under the Constitution of the United States. But like I have said, at least for Blacks, for Chinese, for today, that's how the courts has treated these people. You know, I really hate to uh, cut it short, but because I want to cover the Puerto Ricans, because uh, there's a, uh, Question about whether the Constitution follow the flag or the flag follow the Constitution. So I probably is going to jump ahead a little bit today. I conclude a little bit prematurely without discussing the constitutional status of the Puerto Ricans and the constitutional status of, uh, you know, some other uh, people in other U.S. territories. I'm going to conclude this is that uh, 
you're always going uh, to the question about U.S. territories, meaning that they are outside the sovereign states of the United States. The question is, are those people living in the U.S. territories deserve the protection, full protection of the Constitution? So the court has decided, I will just give you the conclusion first, is that the court in the in this in, uh, case is called the insular cases in, in regard to Puerto Ricans. Uh, Puerto Rico is this. The, constitu uh, the, uh, the Constitution follow the flags, meaning that the courts and the Constitution must feed the need of the American militarism. That actually is true because uh, the court in 1901 have decided whatever the U.S. is doing outside the United States, the court has no business to intervene as long as the U.S. is doing, you know, exporting American democracy to, to less civilized, less Western, non-Western countries. The courts are okay with it. So that actually is carried in the Japanese internment camp, meaning that the Constitution will yield to the military orders. Again, it's called the Constitution will follow the flag, which, of course, I strongly disagree. And I, so I have to, based on my observation of what happened in the Puerto Rico, in Guam, and especially in Hawaii, real quick, as we know, Hawaii is not part of the United States. The United States invaded the Hawaii, just like the United States taking the Puerto Rico and Guam, and make Hawaii a state. Well, at least Hawaii will present two senators and two congressmen to the D.C., meaning they are represented politically, but the Puerto Rico is not, right? So what I'm trying to say is, when the U.S. In, invaded the foreign countries like Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, the U.S. government knew full well that its real intention is not bring American democracy to a foreign territories. Its goal is to disregard the rights of man, the rights of the inhabitants of those territories. So all these foreign wars from the get-go it's not about ex exporting American democracy. You know, using Philippines, the Philippines as example, the Philippines once was U.S. territories. We're there not because we want Philippines to be a sovereign state of the United States. So all these foreign expansions, it's truly a continued practice of a colonialism, meaning that we just want to give them some lessons, beat them up, bond them to stone ages. We're not there just to promote some kind of a rights of a man of the inhabitants. Cases after cases prove that jurisprudential incoherence is the true color and the character of the courts, of the judicial white privilege. They cannot even make their own words match with each other. Although, you know, the one same justice will say complete opposite things. Right? These uh, seemingly incoherent decisions and opinions, both on the records 
and off the records, on the bench and off the bench, supports a coherent government goal of white Western majoritarian rule over non-white, non-Western inhabitants, no matter where these non-white, non-Western people live. It's my opinion the people of the United States must unite to eradicate this kind of practice. I call it judicial white privilege. Now, I'm not asking like uh, a mandate the sensitivity trainings within the courts. You know, as as you probably know, many companies and the federal agencies are currently required to to hold sensitivity trainings. I'm not asking that because the law itself should protect the weak, the politically powerless people, regardless of their color, race, creed, nationality. I am asking all the judges who holds a solemn duty to uphold equal justice to all. These judges should be required to review these cases of judicial white privilege, to review the court's own records on the court and off the court. So these judges are educated out of their own prejudice, personally, racially, politically, or otherwise. And I do believe there should be a term limit on all the judgeship. Because I worry about America today. Because uh, all these, as I said before, all these uh, mass shootings that can be intra-racial, black-on-black shootings, interracial, white people killing black people, and vice versa, and even intra-familial killings meaning parents killing their own children. All these massive numbers of incidents of killings in this country is wholly because American justice system is as corrupt to its core. And finally, we are in the last inflection point that we must make serious reform of a justice system. Because when there's no justice, there will be no peace. And we know why there's a second amendment put in by the founding fathers. Because they truly believe there are a thing called the rights of man. And the constitution is set up to protect those rights. And the courts is there to make sure those rights are protected according to the law, not vice versa. So with that, I'm going to end today's episode and I'm going to talk a whole lot more about uh, uh, the other racial minorities, namely the... uh, the Puerto Ricans and the Japanese Americans. Okay. With that, thank you all for listening and have a great day. Goodbye.